The title sponsor of Hunt Talk Radio is Leupold. Leupold Optics are the trusted optics of accomplished hunters and shooters. If it has a gold ring on it, you know it was built by American hands in Beaverton, Oregon. Whether it's a new rifle scope, binocular, a spotter, rangefinder, or eyewear, go to leupold.com to learn more and look for these fine Leupold products at your high-quality retailers. Hey folks, Randy Newberg here. Welcome to Leupold's Hunt Talk Radio. As I was walking, I saw a sign there on the sign it said no trespassing but on the other side it didn't say nothing well that sign was made for you and me Hey folks Welcome to another episode of Leupold's Hunt Talk Radio. Today I'm with two of the coolest guys that work in this building. Well, probably the two coolest guys who work in this building. Ha-ha. Oh, hear that, Jason? <laughs> Marcus <Hockett laughs> and Blake. Michael Parente. Uh, you know, you, somehow we got off track where with this podcast, we used to tell a story almost after every hunt. Yeah? Yeah. And we all started going different directions, and then Michael decided he wanted to be more of an editor than a camera guy. Yep. So he's I go been, back and forth like every year. It just <laughs> rotates each year, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then we all got busy, and then Marcus takes, I don't know, one afternoon off in hunting season between filming and being in front of the camera and then hunting with his wife, Kara, so... Getting you on a podcast in hunting season, Marcus, I got a better chance of getting the president on a podcast. Didn't we do like a mid-season we recap? Did. Or we did. Yeah, we got, but, right. but yeah, not, not I mean, a per hunt one. Yeah, right. I think we should get back to that. That yeah, was kind of cool. That. All right. Well, I'm going to make, I got my pen here. We'll make some notes of things we got to do. But you guys for the last couple of years have been working on a project that people think is a fishing series. And it is, right? Yeah, yeah. Totally. It, I mean, it, it's fishing, but it, there's some storytelling in there as well, which so, is fun. Yeah, this is Marcus Hockett and his view of life expressed in video. For the... For fish, any fin. For any fin goes, yeah. Yeah. Well, I feel like a lot of it started because of all the stories I heard while going to school. So, mm-hmm. like, going to school in Bozeman for fish and wildlife, you hear all these, like, crazy stories about the the different fisheries that we have in the state. And this is like, I hadn't seen that told outside of a few magazine articles and, uh, you know, there's, there's some good books and magazine articles that have it, but I'm like, we should just retell these in a fishing format where we go out and actually experience the fishery and then, you know, tell a little history lesson about how we got there. And, uh, yeah, it's a balance. And Mike, Michael's the one who actually knows how to catch the fish. So Yeah, we let, I let Marcus take care of all like the natural history on these episodes. So what we're referring to is Anything Goes. If you guys haven't seen it yet, it's a pretty cool fishing uh, show that me and Marcus host. You can check out the first season on YouTube. And we're basically exploring the state of Montana. And like my, like how it all kind of started for me was like, you know, everybody thinks of Montana as being this, like, epic trout destination, but we actually have, like, a lot of cool, unique fisheries besides trout. Um, and so, I have I mean, I love fishing more than anything, and I just thought it was super unique. You know, like, 
let's let's kind of show these different fisheries and expose you know the the diversity that we have in the state other than trout and we've done trout um already but yeah and then like yeah so we kind of bounce back and forth a lot in these in these episodes where marcus has like that that uh biology background and knows a ton and has grown up in the state so he can speak very highly to that and i'm kind of just like the the fishing bum who tries to <laughs> go out there and spend way too much time trying to figure out these fish, but it's wow. been a lot of fun, man. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, I love it. You guys know I'm a huge fan of it because one, the production quality that you guys have put into it is immense and it checks. We're sitting in one of our conference rooms here and we got a whiteboard. People can't see this, but half of our content besides entertainment and inspiration and aspiration, the other half better be education, information, advocacy, and conservation. And I think any fin goes, checks all four of those other boxes. And uh, you, you, poke a, you do a good job, Marcus, of kind of poking fun at some standards or some perceptions. Yeah, I try to poke fun at everybody, yeah, including totally. myself. I mean, I think <laughs> that's the thing. It's like there's a lot of hypocrisy in everybody's actions when it comes to, like, hunting and angling cultures. Right. Like, you can poke holes in every, how everybody does things, and so that's kind of fun way to do it because there's purists in every fashion, especially within angling, there's all sorts of, you know, there's no. the purest fly fishermen, but then there's also, like, the walleye fishing crowd is, like, this really yeah. interesting fishing culture. So oh, that's, yeah. like, the whole other aspect is, like, getting into the culture behind these fisheries yep. and how that ends up driving management. Because when you look, <laughs> and that's, like, one of the big points that's, like, a common theme in all the episodes is, like, none of the fishery are very little, like, yeah, very few of the fisheries in the state are anywhere close to natural, like right. what they used to be. Totally. Because we've dammed the systems. We've mined and like had horrible watershed management for years, mining, logging, like yeah. all of this messed up stuff, invasive species. Like most of the fisheries are full of invasive species <laughs> in our state. And it's just like if you were, I mean, like you could have a fun time with an analogy of you like, you know, it'd be like if we had a bunch of African game running around right. in Montana and like, oh, yeah, no, that's we yeah. like the Cape Buffalo and yeah. the giraffes. <laughs> and like we just, you know, we, they're more fun to hunt. So we we stock all these, you know, tigers and giraffes and rhinoceros, whatever. You know, you can <laughs> there's this yeah. it's a weird thing that we do when you think about it. Just, yeah. So that's why. I, well, I, I want to get I, into some of those hypocrisies and some of these uh, contradictions. Um, but. The first season has been out there for almost a year now. Yeah. And <clears throat> we didn't do a very good job promoting it. We we're busy. We launched it at the wrong times of the year. We we should have done it. If we would yeah, have we put as much. Yeah, we did it when there was yeah. a, a gap in the schedule and, and once we, you know, had them done. Yeah, and we didn't launch them as a series. So yeah. the first season, I know you did. Uh, we did panfish. Yeah, pan we did toothy critters which was mainly like, mainly a walleye episode and randy was on that one mm -hmm. um and then the last one that we did was a, or i guess in between those two was the trout episode where we talked about you know how trout are wild in montana but yeah and, how, and paddlefish as yeah. well oh yeah and paddlefish yeah and uh 
Yeah, so we've we've got four episodes out. Um, we got four of them. I thought we only had three. Four. Four. Yeah. Four. All right. Sorry. That's yeah. all good. I actually completely forgot about the, <laughs> the paddlefish one, but that <laughs> one is really cool. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, and uh, it's just so if they go out to their fresh tracks uh, YouTube channel. Yep. In, or if they go to their YouTube browser and type in any, any fin goes. Yeah. yeah. Not, pop not up, anything goes. Any fin. Any as fin. In a fi- and as a fish fin. Yeah. Any fin goes. They'll little little punny there. Yeah. 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 So I, I thought it was and still is a great idea. You guys are working on season two. Yeah. And what do you guys got coming up for season two that's going to go out? We're going to do a better job. That's part of this podcast is... More yeah, to yeah. make some awareness of that. I'll, I'll take this one, Marcus, since I know the dates. Like yeah, right you know the, the order. That so, we're going uh, depending on when this podcast goes out, um, the 24th of April is the first episode that goes out on Fresh Tracks Plus. So, everybody gets, anyone who's a Fresh Tracks Plus member uh, gets the episodes first. Um, so, the 24th will be an episode on lake trout here in Montana. The week after that, that following Monday, will be a carp episode where we kind of dive into like the two main user groups of carp fishing, which we found to be fly anglers and uh, bow fishermen. So that one's like pretty polarizing. <laughs> it's, yeah, see, that's why yeah. I love this because it's just yeah. like, yeah, two people who are like pretty passionate about what they do or, yeah. you know, two user groups yeah. and just like so different, like <laughs> such far ends of the spectrum. And then, and then the third one will come out that following uh, week, I believe it's the first week of May on Fresh Tracks Plus. Um, and that one's on native fisheries or native trout. Native trout so yeah. that one is a little bit different where we're, t- we're actually like talking about a native like fish yeah. where like a lot of these episodes well, paddlefish are a native yeah i would fish, say paddlefish right. is one of the ones that we've done that it's a native fish but it also lives in a highly altered fishery exactly so whereas the native trout the unique thing unique thing is like oh there are a few tiny little spots left in the state where we still have native cutthroat trout yeah that's pretty cool yeah there's not very many of them yeah. but there's a few yeah. and so <laughs> They, they kind of get left behind. How, how many people do you think get confused that they think brown trout and rainbow trout are native? Because in Montana, we adopted this program thanks to Dick Vincent at FWP. Right. That we are not going to stock hatchery fish. We're going to rely on natural reproduction. And so a lot of people think, oh, these were the native fish species that were here when Lewis and Clark came through or wherever. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that one is a, is a tricky one because, yeah, they're definitely... I mean, the rainbow trout is arguably the most invasive species in the world. Not arguably. It probably is. Like, yeah. As far as the fisheries goes, like, but, uh, yeah, but we're kind of in a predicament there because with, you know, most of the rivers because of dams and mm-hmm. just environmental factors, they're warmer waters, and so the rainbow, brown, and brook trout are able to fill that niche better than a cutthroat will. Yep. I mean, they, they also just, they outcompete cutthroat as well. Yep. But with the, you know, with the dams, with the warmer water temps, they're just, it's kind of a niche that we probably can't put the cutthroat back into right. fully. But there are zones <clears throat> where we can. And in those zones, that's where it's like more of managers still have leeway to try to, either restore or conserve existing cutthroat populations. I I throw that out there because a lot of people think 
that because they caught this rainbow trout in a river in Montana, that that is a native species. Right. Yeah, I think but, a lot of people get confused between native and wild. You well, know what not, I mean? Yeah, because it still is a really cool story. The fact, like what you brought up with Dick Vincent, like to manage even, even though they're invasive or, you know, non-native, the rainbow brown trout, like we don't stock trout into our rivers and streams, which is unique for right. a lot of states. A lot of states just like, you know, have hatchery raised fish that they put into the, to yeah. the rivers and streams. Whereas Montana just took a hard stance and said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to let them reproduce on their own. And it's been hugely successful Yeah, from like pretty much all metrics. Like they still have hatcheries and they'll do stuff in the lakes, and but outside of the lakes, yeah, lakes and reservoirs, but they don't do it in rivers and streams. Whereas, yeah, I think, yeah, I, I, I should look, I should know the history better in other states, but a lot of states, very few stock into their, yeah, very well, yeah. few do what Montana yeah. does. Yeah, there's I mean, not, I mean, I don't know how, I mean, I think really it depends on the, that, like it, it's probably more on a system by system basis rather than like the whole statewide policy. Yeah. But so, yeah, it's been, I mean, that's a cool story in itself, but yeah. and we're kind of stuck with rainbows and, I mean, that's the thing. That's where we're at now. It's just like, we're mm-hmm. not going to, we're not going to completely kill off all of the rainbow and brown trout mm-hmm. in all of Montana's major river. So it's like dealing with what we got, we're not going to go back to all cutthroat. <laughs> yeah. Then it's a pretty cool system for, yeah. for that. And you guys have heard me use the analogy that, these rainbow trout in a lot of ways are kind of like pheasants, right? They're a non-native bird. Right. They've adapted to a manipulated and altered landscape way better than the lesser prairie chicken or, you know, sage grouse. Sage grouse, whatever. yeah, that would be the example in Montana. And we're not getting rid of them. <laughs> it just, it, it's not going to happen. Yeah. And a lot of positive consequences, if you want to call it consequences, positive outcomes happen for the native species as a result of the advocacy for the non-native species. Right. Yeah, because, like, I mean, think about all the work that anglers have done and advocated for. You have groups like Trout Unlimited like, yeah. that have incre- increased the, you know, or made habitat better for everything all around, and this overall watershed management is way better because you have these user groups who are super excited about these trout species that aren't native. And then like with your pheasant example, same thing, pheasants forever, oh. you know, they, they have all sorts of programs that where they're trying to improve sage grouse and sharp tailed grouse habitat, which are our native right. birds, but also, you know, they, they like Quite pheasants other, and you have this huge other. user group who likes to hunt these Chinese ring neck <laughs> pheasants, <laughs> but it's like, <clears throat> other other animals benefit yeah. from it. So. And, and I think you guys in these episodes have done a good job to point out, here's where we're at. You may not even be aware of where we're at. And you guys haven't made any strong statements of, well, let's get rid of all these rainbow trout and, no. and replant oh, cutthroat. Yeah. I think we should. Spotted river carp. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's get, rid of, call them. get rid of them. Uh, no. Yeah. And when I <laughs> call them spotted river carp, Oh my gosh, you guys. I'm looking at Michael because he's the big fly fisherman. Yeah. People get borderline mad. Like, I'd punch you in the face if it wasn't illegal. Yeah. Hey, folks, we're in the middle of application season, and you know what I use for applications, right? For draw odds, for filtering, for strategy articles. It's the big sponsor of this platform, Go Hunt. 
If you want to have that tool available to you before application season ends, go out there now, sign up, use promo code Randy. And when you do, they're going to put $50 of credit in your gear shop account. And mostly you're going to have the information you need to draw that tag and go hunting this year. GoHunt.com, promo code Randy. Nosler Ammunition is the official ammunition of Hunt Talk Radio and every other platform that we produce. Nosler was founded in 1948 by John Nosler. And over that time, Nosler Ammunition has proven time and again why so many hunters and shooters trust Nosler. Whether it's Nosler bullets, components, or their premium grade ammunition, Nosler's reputation at quality shines through. We shoot exclusively Nosler E-tips, Acubons, and partitions in all of our rifles. And all of those can be found at Nosler.com or look for them at fine retailers near you. The Hunt Talk Radio podcast is brought to you by Mystery Ranch Backpacks. For years, I've been using Mystery Ranch Packs. It might be the Metcalf or the Beartooth, the Sawtooth or the Pintler. No matter which Mystery Ranch pack you choose, here's how you can save 10% on your purchase. Go to the Go Hunt gear shop, gohunt.com, put a Mystery Ranch pack in your cart, and when you check out using promo code RANDY, you're going to save 10% off that pack and most of the other regular priced items in your cart. Mystery Ranch backpacks, can't beat them. Go check them out. Where, where does this, like, trout superiority come from you know i i don't really subscribe to to tell you the truth because like i i grew up as a a conventional angler and like you know i i don't really have a good answer for you but i do i know i know what you're talking about because i i deal with it with a lot of my friends it's like guys like let's let's not take ourselves too seriously here we're just dangling a worm in front of a a you know, a non, non-native fish that was, you know, planted here years and years and years ago. Um, I think that it comes with like, you know, especially with like the catch and release crowd, it comes from like, uh, like they want it. Uh, they, what am I trying to say? Like it comes from a good place. Like they're like right. trying to conserve the species or whatever, mm-hmm. but it's like in reality, <clears throat> you taking your limit of fish is not affecting right. the fishery at all. Like we're And not, when it does, Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks is pretty good about recognizing it and putting regulations in place. Yeah. So, like, you can have an impact if you over-harvest, but largely it's, like, a cultural thing that mm-hmm. yeah. it's, like, a self-restricted policy. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what drove Cam to walleye fishing. Yeah. Really? I mean, the, to, cult, the culture behind, like, keeping a trout? or Yeah. When we moved here in 1991, Matthew was a year old. There was two things, or were two things that, happen one i had him on a backpack and i'm wading out in the madison river and slipped on a slimy rock and yeah. down i went about this time <laughs> of year and i come up and he's bawling and screaming kim standing on the shore thinking she's gonna come save us well it was only like two feet deep you know i just fell so she's like we should fish from a boat then he won't fall out well he could fall out of a boat <laughs> but then it was later either that summer or the next summer we used to go out to bear trap canyon before it became like disneyland yeah it was before that what is it red cliff campground or red whatever campground was there you just yeah red mountain it, i think yeah, yeah there, there wasn't a campground there mm-hmm. it was just you pulled off the side of the road and uh so we pull off i got my little playmate cooler and we're using sculpin minnows right which are no longer 
allowed as yeah. bait here. But they were killer on the brown I trout. Bet. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> That'd be sweet. So Kim catches this really nice brown trout. And some guys are watching her, and I net it, and I walk over there, and I just thump it on a rock, and I throw it in the cooler. And they look at me kind of cockeyed. Well, she catches another one, and I thump it on the head. And a guy walks over, and he just lectures us to no end. Yeah. And she's like, look, I fish because I like to eat fish, mm-hmm. okay? And the law says... I can keep however many of these. So here's this little five foot four woman pissed off. <laughs> like, don't tell me how I can go and acquire natural food. But it was such a, a negative experience for her. She, we sold all of our fly fishing gear, even though at that time we were using sculpins. We'd try fly fishing. It's like, screw this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and she went and bought a boat and... More than a bit, didn't have to twist my arm because I grew up walleye fishing. But uh, that was just an interesting experience where I saw this fly fishing kind of, and a river runs through it had just ruined Montana about a year before (laughs) that. Uh, So it was like taking this culture of, I know so many guys who are serious flyingers like you, Michael, that I don't want to say elitism, but within some of them, it's a very snobbish, totally like look down your nose at this guy and this woman who just thumped two brown trout on the head for dinner that night. Yeah, I agree. I, I mean, I, I hope that, you know, as the generations cycle through of, you know, fly angling that it change, it'll change, you know. But I do have some friends that are my age that just, like, cannot stand yeah. the thought of somebody keeping a fish. And it's just like, man, we got so many, <laughs> we got so many of these. And the thing is, like, you know, we, you, your buddy Rocky, we talked about this, too, is, like, us as anglers, like, we're really not that good at catching fish. So, like, <laughs> it's like you, you think that... You know, if you keep two, three fish that you, you're not, you're not touching the, the amount of fish that are in that hole. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, some of those elitists though, as you call them, they mm-hmm. are some big advocates who oh, fall yeah. into that category who do a lot of good in right. terms of like advocating mm-hmm. for the resource. Mm-hmm. And then at the same time, like if you do take super popular stretches, if everybody was right. like really into keeping fish, then it would eventually lead to different regulations because mm-hmm. I, I think about everybody floating the Missouri like True. if all of those guys yeah. killed every fish they caught you would deplete that resource really yep. quick and so then you would have so it's like this interesting balance where these catch and release anglers have allowed for more opportunity total mm-hmm. because of the fact that they catch and release Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the other thing that we touched on on that on the trout episode, which is interesting, I don't think a ton of people think about, is the mortality related to catching all these angling, and especially in warm temperatures mm-hmm. like in the summer. Like right. you watch some of these guys, and they'll play fish yeah. so long to yeah. play them to exhaustion, and then like the it's hard to you know know exactly what the mortality rate is and it, and it changes like i said depending on water temperature and where you hook the fish and if you're using barbless or barbed hooks and all of that but it's like even from what i understand even the if you do everything right and you have i don't know if it was barbless hooks though but the studies that have looked into it, it's like two to three percent mortality yeah 
on catching and release fish. So if you catch a hundred fish in a week, if you're an avid angler, you've killed two or three of them. Right. And that's if everything's gone. Assuming good, it's good. not August, low warm water temperatures. Blah, blah, right. Blah. But that's the thing. I mean, even fly fishing, like I've hooked fish pretty deep where it's like you hook it weird or it's bleeding or mm-hmm. you played it too long or whatever. So, and like to try to figure out like you, you're killing some fish out there. You're yeah. not, you're not, uh, hmm. I think there's a certain catch point noise. too, especially like with the past couple summers we've had with this warm weather, weather and the water temperatures getting so high is like, you might as well just keep them. You know, if you're going to catch one, if you're, if you decide to go fish and it's the water temps 70 degrees or higher, you should probably just keep that fish. Right. Um, there's like, you know, a lot of anglers, especially fly anglers, they'll have like a, a level of water temperature where they won't go over, like they won't go fishing over. Yeah. Um, a lot of times it's between 70 and like 73 degrees. Um, some guys it's, it's lower, but like in my mind, if you're going to be fishing in 70 degrees or hotter, just keep the fish, man. Yeah. It's like that thing is, it's. I, I try not to do it. You know, I just go fish for carp or like a warm water species <laughs> that can take that damage or not damage, but they can, t- they can right. thrive in well, the heat. Yeah. And I guess it, it, I think I should mention too, I'm not necessarily saying that by the two to 3% mortality that you're affecting the population right. or anything, but yeah. it's just no. like, it's a, back to that elitism of like, oh, I'm better than you because I'm right. not damaging the resource. Like, well, if we want to be nitpicky about it, like, let's look at some stats. Yeah. So, trout's yeah, a weird thing. They're like a delicate fish. People are real sensitive about them. It's a big revenue generator in Montana. Oh, so, yeah. like, that also plays into a lot of, you know, the tactics or like, I guess, uh, morality of like keeping fish. I'm sure. Um, yeah, it's like estimated to be like a billion dollar industry. Yeah. It's right. huge, yeah. man. Just People come from all over the world to come trout fish out here. Yep. Yeah. Um, and I mean, you think about that whole, uh, this is kind of a, an uh, irony to it is maybe we complain about all these people coming here and fishing and the rivers are crowded or they're not a true native species. We can sit here and list off all kinds of negatives about that stuff. But you think about the amount of advocacy that comes because of, like you mentioned, it is now probably the most uh, popular, i.e. economically viable use of a resource that we have in the summertime that creates a lot of advocacy it creates a lot of habitat improvement in watersheds and water quality i mean there's a lot of really good things that come out of that and some would say well if we weren't putting so much pressure on the resource we wouldn't need all of that well you know maybe we just need a history lesson of how montana's waters were even before trout got popular. Yeah. Uh, you know, did trout get popular because Montana's rivers cleaned up or did Montana's rivers clean up because people wanted trout to get popular and they did something about it? And so I <clears throat> I, I think you guys do a really good job of talking about the yeah. type of stuff we just talked about and putting it in a a real pragmatic and practical context of this is where we are, here's the good things, and... Yeah. Well, and it's, it's interesting you brought up, like when we're talking about the advocates it's created, but then on the flip side, a transition into when we did our episode on walleye, Yeah, walleye in Montana have created advocates 
for walleye, which at the detriment of native species largely. Mm -hmm. And so, and unfortunately it happens often when people illegally introduce walleye into a system. Right. And the example, like one of the examples I like to use is Canyon Ferry Lake. Yeah. And so Canyon Ferry has gone through this like roller coaster of different fish species that we've had in it. And like kind of the age or the sizes of fish that exist in there because of what we've stocked into it. Right. And so it's a, it's a man-made fishery. So we're already dealing with. It's a with, reservoir. So yeah, it's a reservoir, yeah. damned, damned river. And so you already have this, you know, man-made thing. So it's like, okay, well, this is our big aquarium that we're going to play with and, <laughs> and uh, change to see how we want it. But somebody took it upon themselves to illegally introduce walleye in there. Yep. And unfortunately with that type of a system, those walleye will, they do grow and they get bigger and there's mm-hmm. quite a few of them yep. and English like, this is awesome. We love walleye. They yeah. taste good. They're fun. I mean, Randy is the one who can attest to this the most. He loves oh, yeah. walleye angling. Yeah. But with that system, it can only last so long. There's yeah. no way to sustain that peak of having this like amazing walleye fishery no. because they just eat themselves out of house and home. I mean, that's like the simple way of putting it, but it's just they, true. they create a predator pit where they eat all the, all the prey fish and then they just become stunted. So now what well, like, we're at the tail end of the walleye reign yep. now. And so now they're just like this small, largely small, 10, 12 inches. Yeah. Look like cigars. There's yeah. no girth to them. Right. But then they, but in the meantime, they've made what was a productive rainbow and trout perch. and perch fishery yep. uh, suppressed. Yep. So now that fishery has is less because of the walleye. Yep. And so now you just kind of have an overall less productive system yep. because somebody illegally stocked walleye in there. Yep. But people like to think of the good old days. Like they always remember the walleye when it was the walleye fishing one was the best mm-hmm. and it's like why whoa fwp's managing it into the ground like well no, no fwp did their best with what they had <laughs> right and so it's just like it, you can't sustain that level and then also another thing that's a common theme in our reservoir episodes is aging reservoirs and so mm-hmm. whenever you dam a system you have all this influx of nutrients like you flood all this vegetation and all these prey fish have like great habitat and all these nutrients are in there and they, that can only last so long too. Yeah. So you have these productive fisheries that just start to, to fade. Yep. And so it's, it's a, I don't know. It's a really interesting thing with. Well, the Newbergs are opportunists when it comes to these altered reservoir fisheries, yeah. because we, I don't know who released those walleyes into Canyon Ferry, uh, because they were in the reservoir just down below. And I suppose someone put them in their live well and hauled them up. <clears throat> the Canyon Ferry, but in the late 90s, before anyone knew they were in there, a few of us knew they were in there, and we were just thumping the hell out of them and not telling anybody. <laughs> and then word got out, and word got out, and, uh, you know, even though there was a time, and this is contradictory also, I'll, I'll admit the hypocrisy in this, is uh, I knew that they could eat themselves out of house and home. And Fish, Wildlife, and Parks took the limit off walleyes in Canyon Ferry. And I could have went up there in the heyday any day and caught 50 of them. Wow. 50 of them, 20 inches long. That's crazy. But I would only keep five. (laughs) That was the statewide limit. I'm like, no, I'm only keeping five. And then I'd I'd go to the the boat ramp, and here would be guys who probably thought about it better than I did. They're like, 
you know, they got 50 of them and they're gutting and gilling there. And I'd look at them and they're like, well, they're going to eat themselves out of house and home anyhow. So the longer we can keep them knocked down, the better the walleye fishing will be for a longer period of time. And they might have been more correct than I was. I just couldn't. I, I'm ingrained in this thing that you only take what you need, right? Yeah, yeah. I say, that's a lot of fish. <laughs> yeah. a lot, especially if a lot of them were 20 inches. That's, that's a oh, lot of fish. Yeah, it was 2006. I had Jerry Pritchard's dad, Walt Pritchard, and his twin brother, uh, Wally Pritchard, uh, in my boat in Canyon Ferry for three days. Uh, and they grew up in northern Minnesota, where I did, right on the Canadian border. And Wally especially traveled the North American continent fishing walleyes. And we were working them over so hard. <laughs> Wally is like, why doesn't the world know about this place? I've never been any place where I can catch this many 20 to 24-inch walleyes in a morning. I'm like, well, look at all these boats. You t- what do you mean nobody knows about this place? So by that time, within five or six years, Canyon Ferry had become the busiest fishery in Montana. All kinds of uh, you know businesses got built on the backs of that walleye boom. Mm-hmm. And uh, like you said, it, it was going to come to an end unless you could keep dumping perch in there right. every day. They're just going to well, eat and then them. yeah, and then the habitat too. Like I, they try to catch up by they have like their Christmas tree program right. where they dump Christmas yeah. trees in the lake to provide the bait fish and the perch habitat. Right. But you can only do so much, and right. it's just like throw some you run, Cisco in there, dude. You run, yeah. Well, <laughs> so that's our four well, pack example. Yeah, exactly. Throw some Cisco in there, so it's just like yeah. Because Michael is not recommending that anybody. Yeah. Do that. He's what? Don't recommend. I'm not recommending that anyone does that. (laughs) Oh yeah, don't bring a Cisco to illegal to Canyon Ferry. Don't don't illegally introduce. Look at the fishing. Yeah, Yeah. look at the fishing rigs, and you'll understand. There's huge fines, and rightfully so, associated with illegal introductions of fish into systems. Hunt Talk Radio is brought to you by Outdoor Class. Outdoor Class is an online learning platform that includes access to courses from some of hunting's most trusted experts. You'll find courses by my buddy Corey Jacobson, Remy Warren, me, Hank Shaw, John Barklow, Jamie Teagan, and the list is growing and growing. And here's the other cool part. My buddy Corey, who founded the University of Elk Hunting course, the popular course that is everything known about elk hunting, his course is now part of your subscription to Outdoor Class. So, all for one subscription, at one price, you get all of the Outdoor Class courses, plus Corey's University of Elk Hunting. Go to OutdoorClass.com, use promo code RANDY when you sign up, and you're going to save 20%. This will be great information for any hunter. Hunt Talk Radio is brought to you by Outdoor Class, an online learning platform that includes access to courses from some of hunting's most trusted experts. Outdoor Class now includes the University of Elk Hunting course from my buddy Corey Jacobson. All these courses in one single subscription at one price. Go to OutdoorClass.com and use promo code RANDY to save 20% when you sign up. This is great information for any hunter at any level. The Hunt Talk Radio podcast is also brought to you by our friends at Mountain Tough. 
The Mountain Tough Bodyweight On-Ramp Program is the perfect program for someone who's busy like I am. If you travel a lot, if you got that busy daily life, this works. I know because I've been in it. And I also know that I have to make fitness a priority at this point in my life. The Mountain Tough Fitness app makes that incredibly easy. I get to follow a program from start to finish, and I know when I'm done, I will have achieved my goal and my goal for hunting and my health. I'm going to hunt until I'm 80. Well, I hope I am if I live that long. Anyhow, if you want to invest in your health and your hunting, go to mountaintough.com, sign up for the free trial. You'll get 14 days free. But if you use promo code Randy when you sign up, they'll add another 30 days onto that free trial. Go there, mountaintough.com. There's multiple reservoirs in Montana that have had illegal introductions. The amount going on in Idaho right now, they're got, they got, what is it about the walleye guys? I don't, yeah. I, you know, I identify as mostly a walleye angler and it's like you not had to come on. Well, and the crazy but, thing is a lot of times whenever that illegal introduction happens, you don't know about it for years, oh, years and years yeah. because by the time the population grows enough to start being detected, even in like FWP surveys when they're shocking or netting, like it takes a a, you know, a critical mass to even be detected. Right. And so, and then like, even when you do catch one, it's like, okay, was that a one-off event or is there something happening here? Yeah. And a lot of Usually, times there's something yeah, happening. There's so, something. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like, well, there, Montana's a good, I think, good test ground for a series like anything goes because we do have some rivers that are even though they're not dammed like the Yellowstone's the longest undammed river in the lower 48 it still has a lot of human consequences placed on it oh for sure yeah and a lot of people like to think of it as a native river and to some degree it gets the you know the flushes with high waters and low waters and it get there's there's a lot more to it than say the Missouri that is dammed yeah. from Ennis Lake on the Madison arm all the way down, you know, there's dam after dam after dam until you get through Fort Peck. So there are some significant differences in those two rivers. And oh, so yeah. I think Montana gives you a whole wide spectrum yeah. of fisheries to look at. Yeah. And I mean, that's the thing. I mean, I'm not, I'm not opposed to expanding anything goes to other places. And that's, I'm sure there's just as interesting stories outside of Montana, but it's just what, we're familiar with and it's the low hanging fruit you know, yeah. close yeah. to us. So yeah. yeah. The, the one that I think was the most fun for me to do this year was the working on lake trout stuff. Yeah. Really? Cause lake trout are just such an, I mean, an interesting huh. example. I mean, well, one, they're huge. They're, yeah. So they're fun right. to catch, which is like also one of the issues involved with them. Cause they're this crazy predator that can just take over systems and just, absolutely wreck the native yep. native cutthroat and so i mean and we didn't even touch yellowstone lake which is like a huge issue mm -hmm. and yeah. we didn't even we didn't even talk about yeah. that in this series so that's a whole other story but just yeah. within flathead lake the the roller coaster of species that that lake has gone through is just so interesting yeah. like it was a huge kokanee salmon fishery for a while which, which are, are also a, not native. Yeah, they're in landlocked sockeye. Yeah, and so like, 
And there was this whole industry that formed around that and tourism of people coming up to either catch, catch them, snake them out of the creeks or watch the bears and eagles come up. They'd have all these, it was quite a spectacle. And then they are completely gone now. Yeah. There's not, as far as I know, one left, yeah. which to like think about a system changing that yep. drastically is so interesting. Pretty wild. And yep. so we, we told that story in one of the episodes and... Yeah, that'll be the first one. Yeah. That's interesting about the regional or, I don't know, maybe it's not regional, but you go to northern Minnesota and people could care less really about lake trout. You can catch them in a lot of the lakes, but they suck to eat. If you oh, get, I thought they were delicious. Oh, it's, so the ones we caught If you so catch them good. this time of year gotcha. in the cold water, eh, they're okay, but... If you go and you catch a 20-pounder yeah. and you try to eat that thing, yeah. you may as well eat it raw. It's yeah. like so fishy tasting. So where I come from, if you told me that I could go out you know, behind my house and I could catch all the five-pound lake trout I ever wanted, I don't know that I'd even leave my porch. Well, your fellow like, Minnesotans don't agree because we saw... These are southern Minnesotans. Okay. It's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> different, I guess. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Because we ran yeah. into almost exclusively Minnesota yeah. license plates at Fort Peck, right. which is like a 15, 16-hour <clears throat> drive from pretty right. much anywhere in Minnesota. But so what's going in, on there? Uh, well, what was going on there is the Canadian border was closed for COVID. Okay. Uh. Normally, they would cross at International Falls, and they go up into Ontario and just thump the hell out of lake trout through the ice or in the early spring. And... Uh, well, they couldn't cross the border until August of 2001, I think it was. And, it just uh, blows my mind that in the state of, what, 13,000 lakes that they had to, yeah. they couldn't find one that was better than I, the, I don't know. Than Fort Peck. Especially in, spoiler, Michael They probably Egg. watched the Lindner Brothers on In Fisherman or Lindner's yeah. a- Angling Edge, and those guys probably came out to Fort Peck yeah. on a TV show, and half of Minnesota decided to load up their snowmobiles, and off they came. Yeah. Well, there's, there's a couple fishing shows that are based out of Minnesota, and that's how I like even got the idea of wanting to go up there and ice fish was uh, from a show like that. And I think that, you know, we like I, I know what Marcus is about to say is like we didn't really experience this, but it is a tro- uh, it's a trophy like lake trout lake or uh, gotcha. reservoir. Like I think that's what the big appeal to it is like you're able to go out there and catch some really big ones. We did not spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> we we did catch some in that episode, but just not like we had this idea, like Fort Peck was going to be like, this is where we're going to get all the shots. We're going to get all the <laughs> shots of the big giant yep. lake trouts could be super. Yeah. You'll just have to see. Yeah. What well, when, when, you, when you guys were putting that together and I heard all your enthusiasm, I'm like, well, maybe they'll luck out, but they're kind of looking for a needle in a haystack. Everything, the planets need to align to, so. Yeah, we heard of some people catching them there, but it just seemed like a, kind of a slow time. We spent a lot of time on our flashers looking looking at our graphs and seeing fish coming up and kind of investigating our lures, but uh, they didn't really want to. They weren't very grabby, as I would say. I mean, Fort Peck, <laughs> Fort Peck is a completely man-made environment, so I don't care if they put sand sharks in there as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. You know, it is what it is. They, they got... Chinook in there, 
Yeah. So they got king salmon, they got lake trout, they got pike, they got smallmouth bass, they got walleyes. Hardly anything in there is native anymore. Oh, except they got, the sauger. They, they got sauger and, and uh, paddlefish. There's some sturgeon that end up down in yeah, there. Yeah, but I mean, in terms of what the the interest is yeah. in going fishing there, people don't say, oh, I'm going to go there over the 4th of July weekend because I want to catch a ling or I want to catch a... You know, a lake a, trout. A lake, nope. yeah, well, there. I mean, there is some interest there, but like, yeah, that's a yeah. winter thing. But they don't say, "Oh, I'm going to go catch a paddlefish in there." No, I, I think I've snagged a few paddlefish in there when I've been trolling. Yeah, because all of a sudden, <laughs> ping. <laughs> mm, wonder what the hell that was. You, 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 you tell the story that I'm sure it was that 20 pound pike I've been waiting for, but I don't think it was. It was even heavier. It was like a snag. And then all of a sudden you feel a little thump and then you hear it take off and you're like, I'm going to lose all my line or I'm going to put my thumb on the spool and just break it off here. So I, I think you, it, seeing that as such a, for, for the, you know, what people see it for, what they get interested in, uh, it's too bad it's not more focused on the sauger and the sturgeon and the lane. Well, there's just the, so few of them that right. it's, they're, Almost impossible to target. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't even know how you yeah, when go you got about 30-inch walleyes roaming around out there. It's, right. it's hard to compete yeah. with that. Like, <laughs> it really is. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm just trying to distract people to say, you know, <laughs> yeah. go, go to Sakakawea or, go, you know, go, go to some other place. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, we went there in season one. Was that? that yeah, was season, season one. one right? We'll call it season one. It was the first iteration yeah. of, of episodes. The first season, we kind of, like like we said earlier, we spaced out the episodes a lot more, kind of opportunistically posted them. Um, but, yeah, that episode was a lot of fun. If you want to oh, yeah. see a 20-pound 20, 20 uh uh, p- possibly a twenty-pound pike come out of the ice. Yeah, you let that yeah. one go. We never got to weigh it. Yeah, we didn't. We didn't get to weigh that one. But I caught a freaking toad of a pike <laughs> through the ice. Um, but yeah, that's that was that was one of my favorite episodes. Getting to go with Randy yeah. on his boat and seeing you know like a true walleye angler right. do their thing and kind of try and wrap my head around like. I've kind of gained a lot of gained a lot of interest in the past couple of years, to be honest. And like when we went that time, I wasn't super interested in it. And like it was it, 107 it, degrees yeah. and it was, it was tough conditions, but, yeah. but it, it's cool. I really enjoy watching people who are like really serious about what they're doing yeah. and like learning and like understanding why. And uh, it was cool. I mean, like. Those fish, I mean, it's about one of the only fish I like to eat these days, too. So, yeah, it was a good time. because they're flavorless. Yeah. While they're just, they taste like whatever you season them with. Well, Randy's got a pretty killer oh. no, I, recipe. I, I <laughs> kill pretty much every walleye yeah. Uh, yeah. catch because they're delicious. Yeah. Right. But I, I just like to poke fun because it is like, oh. <clears throat> they are very mild, which I think is one of the appealing facts of, right. of I, a walleye. I say if we completely fall on our face producing media, maybe we just need to start a fish seasoning company. Yeah. Oh, fish. Yeah, just like you sell blends of seasonings. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Kim Newberg's fish seasoning or <laughs> fish mix. Or we call it fish mix. I don't know what it is. but <clears throat> So one of the topics I want to talk about here is, okay, we didn't do that great of a job promoting this, but... If you promoted these episodes as, you know, catch a great big trout or catch a great big this or catch a great big that, you'd get way more views on these videos. Just like 
we know that if we shoot a great big six-point bull elk, even mm-hmm. if it's crappy footage, crappy story, whatever, it gets way more views than all the times we talk about uh, an access project or a fence pole or a habitat project or we get carried away about a migration corridor. People don't like to watch that stuff. Well, we aim to do both. Yeah. We want to catch that big trout. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then also educate and advocate and inform and all the other good stuff. Yeah. In every episode, we try and hit on those, like, those pieces, the natural history, how the fish got there, the current status of them. But then, like, kind of where I talk a little bit more in these episodes is like the tactics and like actually like how to catch them the gear you use tactics seasonality um where you might find the fish um that kind of stuff so we try and do a little bit of a a mix of those few of those things and i think that in in most of our episodes so far we've been able to like even the lake trout one the carpet one we got it done pretty like we got some oh big yeah, fish I think caught. it's some of the most fun I've ever had, like putting together episodes because it does. I feel like to me it's entertaining, but obviously I'm biased. We made it, yeah. Yeah. but it's just like they're to me. It's like a fun way to tell stories about the history while also experiencing the fishery and trying to catch big fish. We love to catch big fish. Yeah. Don't get me wrong; I, the same as I like to try to shoot the big six point bull. Yeah, but yeah, I think it's and Michael luckily is a lot better at the fishing than I am. So I don't think he can make Oh, that's a hundred percent true. <laughs> I think I, I think I like, I like to learn a little bit more about the tactics and like how to do it a little bit more than you do. But like the thing is like, you got to have your line in the water is my thing about fishing. And like, you have your line in the water, like in the, like a lot of these episodes, you're doing the same things that I'm doing and like catching the same amount of fish. So like, yeah, you caught a pretty big lake trout though. Yeah. Lake but trout so did you, dude. Yours was bigger. The point I'm, trying to get to is i'm super proud of that product uh, that that end story the production level the amount of work that went into it and if this was just a business decision yeah you guys would have got axed (laughs) you guys would have got the netflix treatment after the first episode well i appreciate you yeah holding on for us or letting us continue this because it's been a blast yeah work on them but you guys know that that's not what drives us here. exactly that's what i was going to say is like if it was about making money we'd probably just put up a bunch of bang bang shoot them up kind of like elk hunts too like where yeah. we would just only talk about the biggest bull we ever killed or what have you right and we we aim to educate and tell conservation stories and like you said do some of the less sexy stuff we could say and uh you know not not everybody's super interested into that but like how do you how do you like find a way to make the content interesting enough to like also get that story in there is a big deal for us yeah well i think you guys have done a great job of it i i'm i wish that it was as easy to do that in a hunting story as it is in a fishing story. And maybe it is, and I'm just lazy and, you know, not smart enough to figure out how to do it. Uh, but we're going to keep doing them. Yeah. Because it's like I've told you guys, we're just going to do a better job of getting the word out. And if, you know, the old build it and they will come, if they don't come, I don't care. <laughs> you know what? 
I look at this and say, this is part of the portfolio of things that support the mission and the why of this business. And we see that on a lot of our other content too, right? When we did the reindeer film Mm -hmm. about Sitka blacktail conservation, we could have got as many views on that if we would have did a showing down at the grade school. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think it did all right, but for how much effort we put into it. Yeah, two-year project Yeah, and a lot of money. That was another one that I'm really proud to be a part yeah. of, and I love that one. Go check that Me one too. out, too. Look yeah. up Reindeer on R-A-I-N. Right. Reindeer, yeah. the dam that never was. The dam really that good. never was. Really right. good. Like yeah. the dam that never was. That's, and this is because, you know, Jim Posowitz is the focus of that story, and him and his team of people who kept the Yellowstone from being dammed. Uh, you know, my adult life relationship and the mentorship Jim provided me is probably, I, I'm probably not impartial in my disappointment that that hasn't just been a smash hit uh, because we put a lot of work into it. I think it's a super compelling story. It's an example of how many times you probably drive by some place that you're enamored with and you don't know the story of it. And so... I thought we did a great job of telling that story of the Yellowstone, mm-hmm. of all the people uh, who enjoy it and benefit from it. But it's got, you know, 25,000 views, which <laughs> if, if I did how to make an elk fart, we'd, <laughs> we'd get 50,000 views. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it just, it's a reality, <clears throat> I think, that we accept as just what people want to consume, right? Yep. They, most viewers, they don't realize they are the algorithm. Right. Right? You, you control the algorithm in your behavior. So if all you click on, and I don't care if you're talking Instagram or YouTube, yeah. if all you click on is kill shots, you're going to get served tons and tons of kill shots. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if all you click on is the... You know, a guy holding a great big bass by the lips and, you know, that's what you're going to get served. And the algorithm takes all these people who are doing that and say, well, I guess we should just serve a whole lot of kill shots. Yeah. Yeah. And and I don't think people realize that they want to blame it on the algorithm as if it's this abstract thing. The the algorithm is responding to you. Yeah. And your behaviors. So we accept that. Yeah. But that being said, I think there is a hunger for more educational based thing. I mean, as it very evident by how to videos, how to oh, yeah. videos perform very well on YouTube, yep. but also like, I think we can make entertaining videos. Like I don't want to create a boring conservation no. video. Yeah, no right. And I think that's like important to mention, like and when we're making these, the goal is to produce something that's entertaining, but right. we also want to trick you into learning some history at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're going to teach, we're going to teach you something <clears throat> under the radar. Yes, sir. But Mark. no, it's, a, it's a, yeah, I think, and that's like the million dollar question is how do we make something that's fun to watch? It's like an entertaining episode, but at the same time we, you know, we tell some history and, you know, hopefully educate people on mistakes that were made in the past and things that have been done right to either conserve or things that could be done better to further conserve or bring back, you know, something like the cutthroat trout. Cause I feel yep. like they don't get nearly <laughs> enough love they for, right. for really how do. awesome they are. Like, I mean, 
and I, 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 when you guys were going through your decisions about where you were going to fish and what stories you were going to tell, there were some stories you thought about telling, but you said, you know, if we tell this and the whole world shows up there, if a hundred people show up there, it's going to hammer these grayling or it's going to hammer whatever species. And it kind of reminded me of how you and I thought how cool it would be to go tell the story of the scapegoat wilderness and how an elk hunter is who made the scapegoat wilderness. Mm -hmm. And we even went so far as the forest service said for a story like that, we'll give you a film permit. But we've decided, you know what? We're not going to do that because the scapegoat already is loved too much. Yeah, that was like a really interesting one because I kind of went in there and scouted it, you know, not not with cameras. Right. And it was a disappointing experience to like have no to know the story that you told me mm-hmm. and to go into those same spots and to just be overrun with people. Yeah. And it was just I don't know that one was that one was a tough realization for me. Yeah, and uh, to me it was. Uh, and it, again, when I heard you guys considering your list of places and, and fish stories for uh, uh, any fins, I I really respected that you guys said, no, we're not going to go do that. And we're talking about a, a very fragile grayling fishery that you guys said, eh, I just, eh, I don't think we need There's to. Mul- yeah, multiple examples like that. And 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 I appreciated that, and I'm 100% on board. Um, but that grayling story, just like the the scapegoat story, is a story about people who cared and people who did something. Right. And to me, those are the, the parts of it. But how do you tell these stories? And we struggle with this every day, right? No matter where we're oh, going, man. what we do, how many... If people knew what our planning was about where we're going to apply and what we're going to do and, well, we don't want this, we don't want that, <clears throat> we try to weigh as much of that and be as responsible as we can. Uh, and you, you guys did, I, I agree with the decision you guys made on the on some of those not to go tell yeah. those stories. Well, and I'm sure in some people's mind we probably did, you know, they don't want us to show what these fisheries are like and not that we i don't think that we like exactly blew up any spots like the the hilarious thing is i got like like the the carp episode i'm gonna get crap from my fly fishing carp and friends and it's like why (laughs) because i don't know you're gonna know you're gonna know you're gonna know where where we we are everybody knows yeah if if you fish that lake you know where you guys are but if you haven't fished that lake you have no idea no no i that one's not about any particular lake actually yeah it's it's not but it is hard yeah that's the thing it's hard to tell some of these stories without i mean like with the fishery example like we say where we are because that's the part of the story, story is like right. what happened to this particular reservoir what happened to this particular river and so it is tricky and that, i yeah i struggle with that on the hunting side a lot because mm-hmm. there's some really cool stories that are very area specific right but then if we do happen to have a good hunt in that area when we're telling that story it's like ah oh. yeah i mean not everybody knows exactly where you're at and so to me it's like this yeah for you try to find stuff that you can tell a story on a landscape level or there's yeah, I don't know, other ways to tell these stories or to create advocates without 
blowing up a spot and mm-hmm. yeah i that's one of the things i struggle with the most like mm-hmm. working here honestly no, it's we, just like yeah it's tough if uh, if ever you quit struggling with it we'll be concerned yeah, yeah. i mean we all struggle with it we, you know like the other day <clears throat> somebody posted a picture that you know it's like whoa somebody pull that down yeah you know i don't, I don't know how to do in instagram yeah so i'm like pull that down <laughs> uh, yeah it's, it's so it, it's just something that comes with storytelling especially when you're storytelling about landscapes and species and i don't care if it's the fishing stories you guys did in any fin or our hunting stories or whatever we do it's it it carries a responsibility yeah and i i i think we do a hell of a good job of trying to balance that yeah, you try to, like, look at the pros and cons and do more good than bad, I guess. Yeah. Um, well, I think you guys have done a ton of good with any fin. So, Michael, you said when they were going to launch on Fresh Tracks Plus. What's the dates they're going to launch yeah, on YouTube? Yeah, I was just uh, going to say, um, you know, ch- first off, check out the episodes that we already have. Um, yeah. They're on YouTube already. Just go- or Google search or YouTube search, uh, anything goes. And we got four episodes out right now. Um, the, these new se- the new season, we'll call it season two, uh, launches on May 8th on YouTube. So May 8th, uh, every Monday after that for three weeks will be a new episode. We're doing lake trout first, carp in second, and then native trout as the last episode. We don't know what we're doing for upcoming episodes, but I got some ideas. I, yeah, I have we, a lot of ideas yeah. for sure. There's we, so many yeah. cool ones that we got some ideas fun. and just, you know, keep, uh, keep up with the social media and, uh, we might be doing some giveaways and, and, uh, we'll be, you know, keeping everybody in the loop uh, a little bit better than we have in the past on when these episodes are going up. So like I said, uh, fresh tracks plus, subscribers you'll see them the first episode on uh, april 24th and uh yeah i'm really excited about it we like marcus and, and randy you said too is like we put a lot of work into these and it's something that i'm really proud of it's some of my most favorite things that we've i've i've worked on personally mm-hmm. um i love doing the hunting stuff but man fishing really just gets my blood going so uh yeah it's been a lot of fun working on them I think if we told Michael he could shoot a 360-inch bull elk in the parking lot or he could hike over the bridges to the other side to fly fish for 10-inch brook trout, <laughs> he'd have his rod packed, his waders on his shoulder, and he'd be headed east to climb over the bridges. I feel like they'd have to be at least like 16-inch brook yeah. trout. Okay. <laughs> all, right. all right. Well, while you guys were doing all that fun stuff, uh, last summer, I was working on a pronghorn course that just released on outdoor class. And uh, I can't say it's as fun as hunting pronghorn, but if you're a pronghorn nerd like I am, it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, they say if you want to really learn your subject matter, try to teach your subject matter. Mm-hmm. And uh, it required me to go through all my old haunts, all my old journals, all our old footage, and say, why did I do what I just did there? What was I thinking at that time? What was I considering? What was I evaluating? And when you go through that process, you realize how much you take for granted 
that is the benefit of having hunted for 30 or 40 or however many years. Uh, there's an awful lot of things that we're processing. I don't care if you're elk hunting, bird hunting. When you are hunting, you are taking so much information and making instantaneous decisions that you don't even realize it where you're eliminating territory or why you're not going to do this, but you're going to do that. Or, you know, you got environmental factors, hunting pressure factors, climatic conditions of drought or what you're in. Every one of these are entering your mind when you're making decisions. And as I started, I thought, well, this will only be like four or five chapters. By the time I got done with all my notes of all the things that go into my mind while I'm out just pronghorn hunting and pronghorn hunting is way simpler than elk hunting i probably could have done 20 chapters they kept it at 12 so <laughs> but uh that just launched about a week ago out there on uh outdoor class i i uh yeah you I might say that that pronghorn hunting is a lot simpler than elk hunting but i also feel like there's a lot more information out there about elk hunting from oh, like yeah. a hunting standpoint <laughs> yeah. whereas like this is kind of one of a the first educational, like, I, I guess, courses out there in, that I've seen. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. I, I'd search because you want to make sure you aren't plagiarizing somebody. So <laughs> I did a lot of searching to make sure that, one, if there was a course, I wasn't, you know, hijacking anybody. And I couldn't find a course. So uh, if I hijacked any, any information that's out there, it's all by accident. <laughs> But uh, I kind of compare pronghorn hunting to the fishing world of maybe crappie fishing or bluegill fishing. It's people are I, like, mm, yeah, okay. Whereas some people really yeah, get fired up about, about crappie fishing yeah, and bluegill oh, yeah. fishing. And I think in the hunting space, you have a little bit of the same thing. Okay, it's not this sexy thing. You don't see it on the cover of magazines. But there's some of us that just get pretty nerded out on them. This thing called pronghorn hunting. Yeah. And uh, plus they're great to eat, just like crappies. Yeah. Pronghorn is a cool species, and I don't know. They are insanely fun to hunt. It's just like a totally different hunting experience, I feel like, for the most part. I mean, sure, mm -hmm. there's some mule deer <clears throat> that live in similar habitats, but that's one thing I like about it is this takes you to some wild places in a different way. Yep. And, like, sure, yeah, they can live in, you know, agriculture as well as you know similar to i've seen a lot of deer in mountains elk. before too yeah but I mean, it's that's just like not the, the, the norm but yeah some of the some of the places i think are just like the native grasslands uh, the few native grasslands or sagebrush ecosystems that we have left and i love yep. just being out in that stuff just like yeah the, chasing pronghorn but the one i did in nevada last year you guys had hunted that unit the year before yeah uh, but i went up to the north end because i wanted to tell the story of the sheldon pronghorn refuge uh how it came to be and the fact that it was set aside strictly for pronghorn and so i used quite a bit of the outline or methodologies that you guys use in any fans to try to tell that story it was my first crack at trying to do what you guys did with any fans i don't know how it's going to turn out david's kind of wrapping it up right now but mm -hmm. uh there were so many parallels that you see when you start looking at any species uh and here we got this pronghorn that really had suffered for so many reasons you know hardly any left and 
along comes a group, the Audubon Society and the Boone and Crockett Club that bought a place called the Last Chance Ranch up in northwest Nevada. And uh, they, it was 30-some thousand acres. And this was in the 1930s, right? The complete depression, economic terror, you know, just terrible times. And somehow people scraped together money for this pronghorn refuge. Yeah. And they realized that the Great Basin pronghorn, because of the, in their case, it was mostly domestic sheep. There's like 65% uh, common overlap in forage preferences between domestic sheep and pronghorn. So Nevada became the place for millions and millions of sheep. And along... You know, along with the sheep came the demise of pronghorn. Plus, you know, mining camp shooting them for food. And, oh know, yeah, so. well, and that's what I wanted to get into. Like, so when I was saying, like, you get to these wild places, like some of those places that I that I like to hunt that are like that are so rare in the scheme of like all antelope habitat. With this, how much we've wrecked it. With I mean, agriculture is one of the big ones. Like, you just right. convert native grasslands or sagebrush to to farmland so we, we lost like i don't know what percentage of <sighs> pronghorn habitat through that and yeah. then to think of all the fences on the landscape and all of these things that we've done and like you're saying all the sheep all the sh- sheep fe- ranches and all that stuff all those hog wire fences across the landscape have just been this huge barrier for antelope and yeah. uh yeah the mining the it's it it just is one of those stories, just like the fish stories you guys have told. So along comes another, you know, a group to say, hey, we're interested in pronghorn, and they convince back when Franklin Delano Roosevelt, uh, not Theodore Roosevelt, but later on in the '30s, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, he creates the Sheldon Pronghorn Refuge, and it became like. 200, almost 300,000 acres strictly for pronghorn. It's the only of all the refuges in the refuge system. It's the only one for pronghorn. And then across the Idaho border, they have Hart Mountain. Well, along came all these non-native horses, and they got to be completely out of hand, really altered the, the native landscape. So about seven or eight years ago, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service went on an aggressive program and removed all those horses, and they fenced the Sheldon. So now you go there, and it's, <laughs> it's like a lot of places where you see a fence. One side is perfect or, or you know, yeah. at least premium. The other side looks like a complete fire, mm-hmm. a train wreck. And the number of horses outside of the Sheldon right now, it's like ridiculous. So I'm trying to tell this story about our cultural values, the history of this species, how this species is a bit of a forgotten thing or at least overlooked or, you know, not given the attention our other species do because it doesn't generate as much money for some of the agencies or just not... It doesn't bugle like elk, yeah. <laughs> you know, doesn't clash horns like a bighorn sheep. So there's a lot of reasons why it's a forgotten thing. And uh, just trying to give some voice to how human activities have consequences that we maybe don't see on the surface. And it, it impacts a lot of other animals. And there, it's a great place to tell that story is in Nevada um, because of all these things going on. But it 
took me to one of my most favorite places on the North American continent. I, cool. You guys have heard me talk about my college days of going there trucker hunting. I, a non-native mm-hmm. bird species yeah. that brought me to one of America's most grand native landscapes. Uh, so uh, I, I stole a little bit of your your methodologies and your oh it's not my methodology for, it's i don't know it's just so, yeah it's a well, fun way to tell stories yeah and then the, the pronghorn course you know you guys know how fired up i get about that oh, so yeah. i uh I, I hope that people find some value in it and uh yeah, well, like walk well, us through a little bit. Like, so what kind of stuff do you 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 know the the thing I really I... had to put myself back to is what were the questions in my head when I first started pronghorn hunting? I tried to hunt them like white-tailed deer because mm. that's what I grew up doing. Well, guess what? They're way different <laughs> than white-tailed deer. They're different in so many ways. How did they evolve? Okay, their evolutionary physiology determines how they use the landscape. Mm-hmm. So I get into all this stuff, mm-hmm. right? Their, their vision is their key predation detection sense. So, all right, how, how does that determine where you find them? Well, they want to be able to see a coyote coming, so they prefer vegetation under 18 inches. I didn't really know that per se. I just know every place I see pronghorn, it isn't in that really tall greasewood, right, that's 40 inches tall. Well, why? Because, one, they can't see the coyote, and if they do, they can't run through that greasewood very fast. Mm -hmm. But you get out on some of that short sage, and they're motoring, you know, 50 miles an hour. So a lot of things about that, how their their needs for forage uh, change throughout the year, Uh, why they go to this forage at this time of year and that forage at another time of year, and then got to talk about their crazy rutting activities and all their crazy territorial stuff that they do. And so a a lot of things uh, related to that, you know, water where they live is a very arid place. So water's a very key thing. Why they prefer this water hole versus that water hole, why they have a peak watering time at certain times a day versus other times a day. Just... All kinds of stuff, 12 chapters of it. But if they want me to do chapter or course number two, I'd be glad to do it. Do you go into like different uh, like weapon types, like like how to hunt them in archery season and yeah. how to hunt them with the rifle? Yeah. Is there a, a favorite uh, chapter that you have that, uh, that sticks out? I don't know that there's a favorite chapter that sticks out, but chapter eight is all about archery hunting. Uh, and then chapter nine is about rifle hunting. And, and there we take, okay, here's physiology and here's some overall strategies. And then in those chapters, we get into more tactical stuff of, okay, here's how you set up your blind. Here's how you orient it to the sun. Here's how the pronghorn is going to approach because they want, you know, if they have a little berm that they can stand on before they approach, they like that because then they can look down. And so get into some of that stuff with archery, because if you can archery hunt pronghorn successfully, rifle hunting just seems like... (laughs) you know, a layup after a layup. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then you get into some of the rifle hunting stuff and, you know, a lot of that is usually happening in the peak rut or the post rut. And the harder time to hunt pronghorn is the post rut when they're in great big herds. You know, that's mostly when we do it in Montana, whereas uh, Nevada, Wyoming, Utah, Arizona, 
It's either well, pre-rut or yeah, pre-rut. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, too. Depending on the state you're in, like what you're going to encounter in terms of the spookiness of the pronghorn yeah. is going to be drastically different. So it's <laughs> pretty yeah. Yeah, spookiness and size and almost like abundance too. Oh, I mean, for sure. Yeah. Like hunting in a premium unit in Wyoming is just night and day difference oh. from Montana. <laughs> it's yeah. crazy. There's many day, I mean, there's many days that I've gone archery antelope hunting and, and seen, you know, five, five yeah. bucks, which like, you know, you go to Wyoming and you see five in the first minute you're there, you know? Yeah. Um, but I was wondering, did you do anything on, uh, like, field field judging them? Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah, good. We did that we, because... we, did, we did a little something like that years ago, and that's, like, one of the hardest things about uh, antelope hunting. And, and if you are lucky enough to draw one of those tags, like, that's going to come in, into play when you're when you're out there, especially if you're if, rifle hunting. If you want to prolong your hunt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you want to be hunting. <laughs> if you want to hunt more than yeah. right. one day in Wyoming. A lot of pronghorn seasons, it's warmer time of year. Yeah. And if you're way out in the middle of nowhere, yep. like Michael says, you don't want to just throw that thing in your truck, you know, got it, keep the hide on and throw it in your truck and drive around for five or six hours. You, you want to get that thing cooled off. So we get into a lot of that stuff. Um, I also tried to like all of our stuff and I don't know how, how good of a job I did, but I tried to talk about the things that are threatening pronghorn, you know, but hopefully people will connect that to some of the advocacy things like you touched on earlier, Marcus, fences. You know, pronghorn yeah, did not evolve with fences. Uh, and we've we've got footage of pronghorn hung up in fences. In oh, yeah. Or like looking at GPS data, like there's this GPS data of pronghorn that are stuck in a pasture, essentially. Like they've lived there entire life or at least the life that they've had the gps collar on without leaving this polygon yeah of a fence which is pretty crazy they just like don't get through it or you'll see like these big migration routes of multiple collared pronghorn and then they just hit this hard line right and then they backtrack and then they go around and then they eventually get around that barrier but it's like hugely inefficient so yep. I think it's like kind of answering some questions that we already knew were likely a problem, but this, some of these new GP, GPS studies are really showing like how much of an issue yep. these fences are, especially the old hog wire <laughs> sheep fences, like these yeah. panel fences that are like, they're basically a, I don't know, four inch by six inch mesh wire yeah. mesh and the antelope just don't go under fences yeah. or don't go well, over fences right. rather. Sorry. They generally crawl under them. Yeah. And so there's obviously exceptions. There's a pretty famous video, I think, out of Wyoming showing a yeah. whole herd of them jumping a fence. But we yeah. filmed one in, in Wyoming one year, too. Yeah. I remember, like, we were jacked up about that with, with Mason. Yeah. Pretty rare. Yeah. Pretty rare. Yeah. But, yeah, I guess, like, some of them just refuse to. Like, there's, yeah, like, like I said, this, like, year's worth of data where they just won't cross these fences. Yeah. I remember one in Arizona, actually, where they kept going around this pasture. So there was, like, GPS points everywhere except for this one polygon is pretty interesting and then huh. when they and they had the before and after and as soon as they took out that that fence it's just filled right in they scattered all over them. yeah that's yeah. really cool yeah so we talk about all that we talk about how human alterations to the landscape and this kind of sounds weird right but how it's a reality so how do you use that to your advantage when you're out hunting you know I would love to put a backpack on in the red desert of Wyoming and be able to hike for five miles, but I would hit 20 roads 
in that five miles. Right. Every quarter mile, I would hit a road. And so you're not going to be able to change that. So, you know, one of the tactics we talk about is being mobile. And then we talk about energy development, you know. It alters the landscape, and so it leaves other spots where they have to be because they can't. You see them walk through a drill pad or, a, you know, a compressor site or something, but that's not where they hang out most of the time. So we talk about things like that. It's, you know. Yeah. No, it is interesting. I've, like, strategically been applying for areas that, are, are more wild yeah. just to get that experience out of it. Yeah. I, I think that's almost more important to me than trying to shoot a big one. It's yeah. like, I love just being able to hike and, and hunt them that way rather than, mm-hmm. but that being said, some of the biggest pronghorn come from those incredibly <laughs> roaded areas. So it was like, yeah. ah, it'd be kind of fun to I, go shoot a big one. But I think that is why I am so infatuated with pronghorn hunting in Nevada. Yeah. They still have the remotest, the most remote of remote places, at least in terms of what we have on, on our landscapes today. Pronghorn and Nevada live in some pretty desolate mm-hmm. places that are they're still altered, but they're not altered with a road every quarter mile or huge yeah. energy development or solar farms or wind farms or whatever else it might be. And so going and chasing them in those spots. Yeah. Yeah, That's, that's that's really intriguing. And so I don't know if people like it or not. I I think they will. Uh, Hopefully in the process, we advocate for pronghorn uh, a little bit. We give a little more voice to it. Um, You know, some people say last thing we need is another way for people to know more about hunting anything. And, uh, you know, that I get that, that people may not like that, but one of our four supporting principles is education and information, or I guess right. two of them. And uh, that's the role outdoor class plays in, in part of our mission is to educate and inform. Yeah, uh, and like you said, you're not. it's not like you're putting GPS coordinates on no. a map and telling people where to go. You're you're speaking in broad terms of, like, this is the system you can u- utilize to hunt yeah. pronghorn in any area, not just... this particular spot yeah some people will probably be disappointed because i don't touch at all about predators i you know pronghorn populations are so minutely affected by predators relative to other things that yeah it's not even worth a chapter to discuss predators in terms of pronghorn now if you wanted me to nerd out on habitat quality That that would deserve multiple chapters, yeah. you know. And then we look at this winter in Montana, Wyoming, Northern Colorado. Weather, you know, climatic cycles are the. There, there's nothing that is going to kill. If you took all the pronghorn killed in Wyoming in the last three years, it wouldn't add up to how many died this winter due to right. winter kill. And those highest areas of winter kill. Uh, some of them uh, have the most disrupted habitats. Yeah. You know, talking about your fences, people say, oh, man, those antelope, they migrate 15 miles. Well, what if before they were migrating 80 miles and now they've got an interstate with fences? And the way they got through really hard winters like this winter was they migrated that extra mileage 
to places that blew free of snow or whatever. But we don't know that because we never we weren't around back before. You know, they didn't have GPS yeah. collars on them back before fences came. But there's all these things that are going on that sometimes it's not necessarily the information you provide; it's the information that you don't give any attention to. And I just I didn't really care to get into predators and you know people in new mexico and arizona will probably get fired up but. i know they, they probably <laughs> will but the thing, no i think anywhere actually yeah but that's the thing i think the interesting thing about predator control is like sure can you save some fawns yeah but like right. to do it effectively it requires years of years of mass scale yep it, like you need, you basically either need to be poisoning across the landscape, which you can't do anymore. Right, you can't poison coyotes or, and all the other ancillary species. Or aerial gun to the tune right. of, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. Right. So, that, so without that, you going out and shooting a coy- 10 coyotes, whatever, a winner, you're, yeah. you're not doing anything. Like, unfortunately, in the scheme right. of things, like, it's a popular narrative to say you are. Yeah, but, it makes you feel good. Sure, yeah. whatever, knock but yourself if, out. But using the expensive techniques of aerial gunning or whatever, you think about if we made that kind of incremental increase in habitat quality every year. Right. Put that money and effort and advocacy into right. habitat. <clears throat> right. I I view some of these. Uh, to me, if you use the analogy of should I buy a house or rent a house, habitat is like buying a house, okay? You're creating an asset. You're going to have it for a long, for however long you take care of it. Mm-hmm. All these other crazy things of, you know, bounties or whatever people might talk about, you know, even season setting as to whatever, they're almost like I'm going to rent a house. It's, I don't know if it's a, a good analogy, but to me, habitat is an investment. The other stuff is an expense. Yep. And investments done properly provide a return. So that's one of the things I, I don't know, maybe I should have got into it because I, I, don't get me wrong, I've done a lot of trapping and a lot of uh, fur hunting. Right. Uh, I, I'm, I'm all in favor of it. Don't, I'm, I'm not, it's just, I don't want to kid ourselves that somehow that's solving the habitat issue that really affects yeah, pronghorn. Yeah, exactly. So, but anyhow, that's uh, that's what I was doing while you guys were out fishing. Well, it's funny when you were talking about the these long migrations that we might not have known about that brought it back full circle to me because I when I worked in central Montana for a season after a really hard winter in 2011, all those pronghorn migrated and crossed the ice of Fort Peck. Yeah. And so they migrated some of them out of Canada and came, or, you know, Northern Montana, and they kept going south, kept going south, crossed the reservoir. But then by the time they were heading back north, the water, the ice had thawed, and so it was open water. And so that year there was thousands of dead pronghorn that tried to swim back across Fort Peck. Yep. And didn't make it. Wow. This yeah. is crazy. And that that yeah. winter was insane. And I mean, this this winter is very similar in yeah. different spots, but this is just the story that I was familiar with mm-hmm. being in that area. I mean, like trains killed hundreds of them, like, because yeah. the only place that they could walk was on the train tracks. And it's just, it's so crazy what one winter will do to a population. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, 
I have seen pronghorn swimming. Well, I, you're out there walleye fishing, you know, you're dragging your bottom bouncer or something. You look like, what the hell is that out there? Here's three pronghorns swimming across Fort Peck. But these ones were smart. They went way up by Devil's Creek where it's not that far <laughs> yeah. to swim. I, I might be able to swim across at Devil's Creek. And they got up the other side and headed north. Yeah. And Michael uh, got that. Yeah, I was going to say there's <clears> a <throat> short on our YouTube channel of uh, some pronghorns swimming across the Madison River in like raging yeah. current. It's, it was insane. <laughs> I could yeah. never, I couldn't believe it. I, I wonder if they feel comfortable swimming because their hair is hollow and that makes yeah. them more buoyant. I bet you. Yeah, I don't know. I just yeah. know that a lot of them didn't make it. Right. Yeah. Well, but. I wouldn't want to be a pronghorn out there and all of a sudden a big wind come up and now I'm bobbing around in six-foot waves. Yeah. You Probably know, not like, knowing which way to go. And yeah. Yeah. That's weird. Yeah, but, that's intense. Uh, what year was that? 2011. <clears throat> I'm going to have to check, do a little researching on that. That's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, we get a hard winter about every six or seven years. We had the one 2010-11, 2016-17, now 22-23. Uh, 96, 97. We got, we got one in 96, 97, then another one right away in 2000, 2001. And then we got like a, a, a well-known 2006, seven was another so-so one. But, uh, we get these five or six year breaks and the populations recover and the age class gets good and everybody's like, yeah, all right, finally. And then along comes... Mr. Winner. Yeah. I was like, oh, I'm going to show you who's the boss here. <laughs> yeah, I'm curious to see kind of, I haven't <clears throat> seen a ton of like um, reports out of Montana because some of our areas didn't get hit near as hard as, right. you know, the rest of the Rockies, like Utah, yeah. Wyoming, Colorado just yeah. got absolutely hammered. Yeah. You see it's but, supposed to snow again tonight yep. and tomorrow between this time when it starts snowing tonight until Friday morning, we're supposed to get over seven inches again. Yeah. Are you guys unaware that we live in Montana? <laughs> I am fully aware. Yeah, I just, I just, are you no, unaware just, that it's April whatever, 14th? Do, do you remember what happened last year around April 14th? I was hunting turkeys yeah. in a snowstorm. The exact uh, same thing. Day. Yeah. You know what happened the year before that? <laughs> around mid-April? The exact right, same thing. I, I, I just want to say that I, every April and also you in know, May, in May, we're going to get some snowstorms. It does look like it's going <laughs> to, if spring is, is here. I think. I mean, like, besides these, like... Well, Michael's house is flooded. <laughs> yeah, my house is... Yeah, we got three water pumps going in the basement right now. I think each one of them go, does uh, 1,600 gallons a minute. Or not a minute, uh, an hour. So we got a lot of water in the basement right now. Um, but, yeah, hopefully... hopefully it's, I'm, I got it's my It's a time of the crossed, year where man. you alternate days between yeah. shorts and T-shirts yeah, and wore shorts puffy yesterday. jackets. Like, it's just... That's just the way it is. Yeah. This is one of my favorite times of the year, though. Oh, I love it. I love it. it. Yeah. Really? It, this is probably because I've been a CPA for most of my life. This time yeah. of year, I was always so tired after April 15th. It's like, I just need to go crawl in a hole for two weeks. Yeah. yeah. And maybe I can move again. And... uh Ooh, speaking of which, I need to do my taxes yeah, I know, tonight. I'm, that's that's <laughs> what? my plan tonight. Is, uh, I was like, it's going to snow tonight. So last, you know, the past couple of nights I've been like, you know, really thinking about it. It's like, all right, Wednesday night, that's the night to do it because it's going to snow. Uh, but yeah, got to do my taxes. <laughs> Slacking wow. this year. Mine's already done. Yeah. Well, and I well, bet it makes you mine, sense. 
my tax return is probably more complicated than your guy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mine's pretty straightforward. Yeah. Dang. I'd, well, <laughs> you, I'd like to say you better take the rest of the day off to go do your tax returns, but... Luckily, it's, like, simple enough where I just, like... You can just, like, take pictures of your forms now, and it just, like, auto-inputs everything. Oh, yeah. TurboTax? TurboTax, yeah. Wow. Huh. Yeah. I think it was tur- I've used it H- just, H&R and TurboTax. I'm pretty sure both of them you can just like it import just your stuff. Yeah, yeah, just I like, mean, I definitely check the info, but like... Oh, I don't. I, no. <laughs> 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 I just keep messing... I just change the numbers until like the number, like the return's the highest. Yeah. No. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, well, I did our tax return uh, last... I finished it on Saturday, but the Saturday before, I spent the whole day working on the tax return. Came home with a draft of it and showed it to Kim, and she's like, go work on it again next weekend. Yeah. <laughs> like, really? Dang. She's like, yeah. Well, I worked on it all day, and I didn't, and, and really not a number changed. <laughs> and so I came home and said, honey, this is as good as it gets. So I don't know, maybe, maybe she's looking for a new accountant today. But... Uh, well, thanks, guys. Keep up the great work out yeah. there at uh, Any Fins. Yeah. And, uh, We're excited to show everyone. Be thinking about what you're doing for this summer if you got time to fit any of it in. Yeah. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. Are you ever see it expanding outside the boundaries of Montana, or do we just have so many stories here that it... I think that's a question for you. (laughs) Controller of the budget. (laughs) Because the further we go, the more expensive things get. Well, that's true. Uh, Well, until I I fell through a shower door and messed up my arm, this week Michael and I were supposed to be in Lake Havasu, Arizona, catching bluegills in an altered environment of the Colorado River. Yeah, that would have been a cool one. But ended up putting that on hold. So I don't know. Yeah, we'll yeah. figure it out. Yeah. Budgets. That's the, that's the sad reality that we do have <laughs> budgets that kind of has to, at, at least to some larger degree, we got to, I mean, if you guys want paychecks, we got to stay somewhere within the budget. I and mean, there's some really interesting stories in Bristol Bay, up in Alaska, you know, there's some <laughs> stuff in, in the North New Zealand. Bowl. We're like, oh man, there's some cool <laughs> stories down bass. in New Zealand. Huh. <clears throat> well, Michael's. I don't get him thinking about this because he'll he'll say, "Hey, I'll I'll give up all my hunting tag applications if we can go film in New Zealand." <laughs> but but someday, Michael, I need to take you to one of the best steelhead spots I've ever seen, and I couldn't catch a single one of them. Well, it's pretty hard to do nowadays, even in the best spots. Really? Yeah. Steelhead are not doing great. But it was a, a creek about as wide as this room. And yeah. they were just finning in there. Yeah. Like They were the biggest steelhead I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. This was in Alaska. Yep. But they they wouldn't... I mean, I, odds I are you catch you're, them. you're in a spawning, uh, like a tributary, I'm assuming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they they don't eat. I mean, like it's kind of a... Mind is on other things. Yeah. It's kind of a weird thing that, like, people catch them, you know. Um, How do you catch them then? You snag them? No, you don't. No, I mean, you don't snag. I mean, they eat it, but I think it's more of a reactionary thing where they're like, get out of my zone, Hmm. and they come up and swipe it. Um, We just did some steelhead fishing, me and my girlfriend in Idaho this year, and we caught all of our fish in the mouth and actually caught some swinging with spay rods. And it's 
pretty amazing that those fish come up that far out of the ocean 500 it's over 500 miles to where we were uh fishing in, yeah, Steel, or in in idaho and they're willing to move to a fly um but like a lot of data suggests that they're not like they're not actively feeding so i think in my mind it's like you put it right in front of their face and it's more of a reactionary thing than it is like i need food because they got one one reason to be up in that tributary and it's to get on those reds and spawn so are they like salmon where they keel over they don't they they go back to the ocean um but there are quite a few that don't yeah. get back because they're kind of depleted by the, especially the ones that come all the way up to right to idaho wow. so. this spot is only a mile from the ocean yeah i mean these those things. ones are probably making it back <laughs> I, I would think so i could have yeah. swam back yeah. to the ocean yeah. going downstream but yeah. uh well folks thanks for uh listening i hope this gives you a little uh insight to the hard work that marcus and michael put into the any fins uh, any fin goes, right? Any fin goes. I yeah. keep calling it just any fins. That's, my... that's fine. Yeah, I think we yeah. call it any fins. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but you guys put a lot of work into it. Hopefully people will go out to our YouTube channel, watch last year, and then go out there yeah. and, and watch your stuff when it comes out. Yeah. Um, Let us know if you like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, if you want to go check out the pronghorn class, uh, go to outdoorclass.com, promo code Randy, saves you 20 bucks uh, or 20%, well, I guess, 20 bucks, 20%. Same, same difference. Thing. And you get all the courses, me, Corey, Remy, Barklow, you know, Frank Shaw, Jamie, list goes on and on. But uh, I guess you guys need to get back to storyboarding some more <laughs> yeah. fishing episodes. Yeah, do some it, editing here. It is a nice, beautiful day, so your mind is probably on <laughs> fishing more than it is on uh, storyboarding. Yeah, but. I'm just I'm looking forward to the weekend, but until then, got to get some work done. And you got to get your taxes done. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> uh, that, that you know, there's a couple of rules here. If you get a game violation, you're fired, and if you go to jail for tax <laughs> evasion, you're probably fired. So <laughs> Sounds good. Don't. Good to know. The, the, the latter one is pretty easy to avoid. Yeah. You know, and like TurboTax, yeah. H&R Block. Oh, whatever. yeah. So, and I'd offer to do your tax returns, but my wife doesn't want me doing hers, so you guys probably don't <laughs> want me doing yours. So, but, uh, well, thanks, guys. Appreciate yeah. all your hard work. Keep uh, keep at it, and uh, just know you got got the green light to do it as long as we're talking about conservation and advocacy and stuff like that all right on well thank you yeah thank you yeah thanks for being here folks when the sun came shining and i was strolling and the leaf fields waving and the dust clouds rolling as the fog was lifting a voice was chatting this land was made for you and Thank you.
for you.